1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we turn again this morning. Finishing a text that we began last week, first paragraph of a three-paragraph response that Paul is saying, why are you guys so boastful and proud and arrogant and divisive and dissentious, dissenting, and what's this all, what's this all about? Why, what kind of boasting do you have in yourself that you think that one group has more of Christ or more of the wisdom of God than the other group, and you're just at, at odds? Uh, to, to whatever degree, we don't know exactly how developed these, these different groups that he identified earlier in the chapter are, and yet we realize the root of that is really pride and, and thinking that somehow we have more of the, of the word or more of the spirit than the other people do. And so Paul, addressing, again, his, the second longest of, a, of his epistles, being First Corinthians, he wants to get right to the, to the root of the issue and says, you guys, you need to notch yourself down uh, several ways in terms of your self-view. You're, you're so self-focused. You're so selfish about things. You're, you're self-centered. You're egotistical. And be- because of that, your, your vision toward other people and toward the wisdom of God and his wisdom in the world, it is skewed. And there's something not right about it. And that's affecting your witness in the world. And I want you to be good and godly influences in a pagan generation, in a pagan city, right? The third most populous city in the Roman Empire in the first century anyway, being Corinth. And so Paul says, you really need to appreciate what you have. And that is a clear gospel message. It's absurd. It is worthy of ridicule in the world. Not that it's worthy of ridicule by God's standards, but by the world's standards. Yeah, that is foolish. That is just impossible. And even, Paul will get into it next time, the, the second paragraph of this three-paragraph section, saying that the, in fact, I do I have it here? I think I do. That the gospel, the absurdity of the gospel is it preaches a crucified Christ. That's where we started last time. We'll finish that idea today. A crucifixion. We, we really don't have a, an appreciation of that. How shameful, how vile that was to die on a cross. It is, it is just wicked. It is, it is a, a, a just a, a shameful, embarrassing situation. It is meant to be humiliating in every step of the way. Going to the cross, hanging on the cross, being taken down from the cross, thrown to a, a pauper's grave, open grave, and let the vultures of the air come and eat the body. It's just the whole thing is just, yeah, yuck. And yet that is what we celebrate, the cross of Christ, a crucified Jesus. Yes, we do. It's absurd to the world. But this gospel is where, where life comes. That's how we receive this, this grace uh, given to us through Christ. Well, the, absurd of the absurdity of the gospel is because of the message of the gospel, but also it only applies to those who will not, will not boast in themselves, recognizing I've got nothing. I am not just a zero. I am a negative infinite value. God is quite ready and willing and right to judge me and to cast me away from his presence. I've got nothing. And some people say, well, but I've got this family, or I've got this wealth, or I've got this connections. doesn't matter. Do you have Christ? If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. But the wrath of God abides on you. Only those who can only boast in God are recipients of the gospel. And that's a second aspect of you guys... You're boasting in yourself, but you have no reason to boast. What, you, you're full of yourself, but you need to be full of Christ. And then finally, the, the third paragraph in this section, chapter 2, 1 through 5, talks about the 
witness or the, the presentation of the gospel that Paul brought into Corinth. He says, I didn't come with all this rhetorical skill and, and, uh, and all the attending lights and flash and all the, all the things that would go along with, with a, a, an orator or a rhetorician. He says, no, the power of God is in the message preached, not in the preacher. The power of God and salvation is the gospel. The gospel relies on the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of men. In other words, we don't need, don't need to add some other uh, approaches toward the gospel. We need to bring in this idea or that idea. No, we rest in the power of God. And so Paul is, is really setting the foundation for what he's going to address the rest of the chapter. It's the gospel. You remember the gospel. The gospel isn't just to get, you pe get people saved. The gospel is our life. It carries us through. And you think, well, boy, that's kind of simplistic, isn't it? Can't we move beyond the gospel? Yes. But the understanding of the gospel is not just as he will define it in 1 Corinthians 15. There's, there's the heart of the gospel, but then you expand the view of the gospel. It's the whole Bible. It is what is God doing in the world? How can God, a holy, just, a righteous God, how can he have a relationship with dust? And not just dust, but rebellious dust, or treacherous, treasonous uh, traitors that, that are just defy God and, and claim to know God. I know God but can't, can't know God by their own wisdom. We saw that in verse 21 here in this text. Let me read this text beginning at verse 18 through verse 25, and then we'll look at uh, just the, the last half of this this morning. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews, Zions, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We looked again at these verses beginning at verse 18. The message of the cross is word of the cross, which again, we, we think it just rolls off our tongues, cross and Christ and crucified Christ. That is a shockingly shameful admission. It's a, it's a statement of weakness. It's a statement of, of, of weak um, loss of strength or just a, a weakness, as he says there in verse 25. It is something that is just so repulsive. It's, as he says it here, it's an offense to the, to the Jews and it is a, a stumbling block to the Greeks. And it just, it is, it is absurd. Why in the world would God become a man especially in the, the Greek kind of thought of matter is evil and spirit is good. Why would God, whose spirit, become a, a material person? What is that about? That's just, that's just, that's not the direction we want to be going. He says it is foolishness to those who are perishing. Oh, wait a minute. To judge the, the gospel based on our destiny a problem if we realize whoa those who are perishing have this attitude so if we regard the gospel as something that is it's foolishness we don't understand it it's, it's kind of embarrassing even to talk about in in polite company no we we proclaim christ we talk about christ because it's the power of god there's no other solution it's not like we can go out and and got, find plan b or c and say oh plan a is kind of weird no but this is 
the power of God. Foolishness kind of is futile, right? What kind of benefit do you have from these things? But the power of God, that is effective. That does things. It's kind of like when Jesus was called a friend of sinner and all these things, and he referred to John. You know, John comes uh, neither eating nor drinking or doing this kind of stuff, and you say, you know, he has a demon. And uh, then you, then here I come, the Son of Man coming, and he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and you say, he's he's wicked too. How can you win? You you both you will exclude both John the Baptist, the forerunner, the Messiah, and me based on your wisdom? Let me tell you something, Jesus said. Wisdom is justified by its deeds. In other words, wisdom works. You may not appreciate it, you may not understand it, but God's wisdom is effective toward these things. It's the power of God. And he goes on and talks about the, the, the wisdom, those who are experts, which he lists again very clearly in verse 20, the wise man, the scribe, and the the debater, the sage, these are the professional guys. He says, God is going to destroy and just set aside. Set aside in a, in a dismissive kind of way, but also set aside in a, a destructive, nobody's ever going to do this thing again. It's kind of like, uh, if you don't mind, the idea of hamstring horses. A horrible situation back in the old old warfare time where you would render a horse useless. Nobody's ever going to use that. Maybe use it for, for showing around and the, the whatever, but it is a... So it's a problem. You are destroying that horse and the course of that, that surgery, that, that wickedness. And God says, I'm going to do that with the cleverness of the clever, the wisdom of the wise, and be set aside. And he says, verse 20, look, these, nobody's going to boast. The wise man, the scribe, the debater of this age, no, no possibility of, of uh, recognizing that their wisdom will save them. No, you need the wisdom from God. You need to humble yourself before God. We saw briefly, I'm just rehashing from last time, verse 20 had these this list of, of three categories, I suppose, of wise people or understanding people. The philosopher there, or the, the wise man, as it said here, the sage, maybe it is, could be described, and the scribe and the debater. And there's different ways of classifying that, but either the, the first philosopher is kind of a generic idea and including a lot of people, or it's very specific, you can talk about the Greek philosophers, in which case... The debater would be, again, either a generic kind of big bucket idea or a very specific, uh, those who argue and, and love to just talk about new things. Uh, Acts 17 talks about those who just would gather together, just talk about new ideas. Hey, what are you thinking? What do you got going today? And it's not really to make any progress in the world. It's not really to be effective on anything. It's just to talk, just to think. Very, uh, not, the word's not skeptical. The word is... Um, made up or, or fanciful or just, you know, what if kind of situations or, you know, suppose that this happened, then what would this, how would this affect this? And it, I mean, if you have nothing else to do with your time, why not do that? But you have much better use of your time, don't you? Why don't we talk about things that matter and that things that are powerful, things that can move the needle, move things that can change the world, and that is the power of God unto salvation. The second of these three ideas, the scribe, isn't just somebody who's, you know, good at calligraphy or, you know, wedding invitations and stuff. It is I think very specifically a Jewish scribe, because he's going to talk about the Jews. He talks about it several times in this context of, of uh, 18 through 25. And you think, well, what are the scribes doing here? The scribes are mentioned a lot of times. In fact, most of the times this word is used is in the Gospels and Acts. And it talks about Jewish professionals, Jewish law keepers, law givers, not just the keepers, but the givers, the one who interpret, because they're so familiar with the text, they're able to expound upon it, teach upon it. And Paul says, even those who think they have a wisdom of themselves, 
that is able to explain the word of God more clearly, uh, which they're not. They, they hide it. They obfuscate it or, or put covers over it, layers on top of the, of the law and make it harder to, to uh, keep. Jesus said that, that they lay burdens on people's shoulders and they don't lift a finger to try to help them. They, that's what they do, these scribes. And they're so full of themselves and you know they are the ones who will find fault with you oh you did that this morning that's that that's wrong that you shouldn't have done that and so he's going to focus on that as well these three different categories have to do with man's wisdom man's word versus if you don't mind god's word who are you going to believe who has the greater authority we always go back to the text we've got to go back to the word of god and interpret you know get our minds under the word of god not over not equal to the word of God, but under the word of God. And so we would receive from Christ his word implanted, that we would begin to, well, not begin, but to, to continue that idea of conforming our thoughts to God, uh, being renewed in the spirit of our mind, he says in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, that we have, uh, there's a work that we need to do because we're so much in the world and our thinking is so much that way and not just in the world, Man, we have this, this sinful nature that is still uh, troubling us. We have a new nature in Christ, but we have this flesh that still weighs us down. We have patterns of thinking that need to be wiped away, get rid of those things, and to be more made more like our Lord Jesus Christ. We know in verse 21, it says that it is impossible. Uh, it, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. It's, knowing God is impossible for the worldly wise person. But it is granted. In other words, you can't get there from here as a worldly wise person. But if you turn to Christ, he will give it to you. And you think, well, but how can we boast in ourselves in it? If it's a gift, then how can we boast in ourselves saying we discovered this and we, you know, can get a patent on it or a copyright or whatever? No, this is gifted. It's, it's, a, it's a gift. It, it is something that is granted on, by God's good pleasure. Well, wait a minute. Didn't I earn it? Did what I do the salvation? Nothing. But but surely God must have seen something good in me. You know, looked down the annals of time and saw that you know I would I would kind of be a good good doobie or something. No, it's according to God's good pleasure. Why did God choose Israel? Because they were mightiest, strongest, wisest, wealthiest? No, because they were weak and small and insignificant and a, a scourge and receiving the scourge of, of uh, humanity. And, and yet God says, I'm going to do something through them. I'm going to raise up a Messiah that's going to save not just the Jewish nation, but the whole world. As we see here, Jews and Greeks can receive this salvation. In other words, it comes back to God's good pleasure. What is God up to? How can God take pleasure in justifying sinners? What's in it for him? God doesn't need anything, right? But he delights in the praises of his people. He delights in the prospect of having redeemed humanity, worshiping his son. He wants those who are justified to say, thank you. Is that it, God? That's what you, what you get your pleasure out of? Yes, he loves it. He loves it. He is sufficient in himself. He doesn't need anything, but he loves redeemed humanity. And so he, it, it's his pleasure, and he grants the salvation to those who believe. He has several different ways of, of saying that. Here, and Paul does here in this text. Those who are being saved, back in verse 18, Verse 21, those who are, or those who believe, um, yeah, those who believe. And then in verse 24, he's going to talk about those who are the called. 
And you think, well, who's, you get a phone call or something? No, it's those who are summoned out of the world system, summoned out of death and depravity and all this, and brought into Christ's presence through God's good pleasure. And so we realize, wow, God is the one behind all these things. He's the one destroying, by the way, again, destroying the wisdom of the wise, setting aside the understanding of the of the prudent or however, and he gives grace to those who will call upon him according to his good pleasure. Well, verse 22 is where we see a contrast. Jews, indeed Jews, ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Big categories, Jews versus Greeks. And notice, by the way, in this, in this text, verses 18 to 22, he uses Greeks a couple times, and then he also talks about Gentiles or the nations or um, pagans in, a, in the sense of those who don't know God and are making things up uh, out of whole cloth. They're just, they're, they're these, these people, either you're Jewish or you're Greek, and Greek specifically with reference to philosophy and the love of wisdom, Herodotus, a historian from the time of Socrates, so like 500, 400 BC, talked about the, the idea that, that the Jew, or the Greeks rather, here he said it, uh, all Greeks were zealous for every kind of learning, just anything. They wanted to learn, voracious, which sounds good, and it is good. We want to be continuing, you know, continue education. We want to have the zeal for learning and zeal for curiosity and all this that is somehow stifled in our, in our modern age. But the Greeks, they just loved it. In fact, they're heroes. Okay, so they had the athletic games, the Olympic games, and the Isthmian games every time and again. So athletes and soldiers, but the really celebrated people were their scholars, their philosophers, and, and to honor Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and, and uh, other folks. That, I mean, they had some math and they had different things, but boy, these people who think, they are just wonderful. And so, yes, the Greeks do uh, were zealous for every kind of learning, just talking about things. And so... Paul makes this contrast, we're preaching a crucified Christ, and that idea of a crucified Christ to Jews is just, it's, it's, it's dumb. It's, it's not something that they want to spend any time with. Their Christ is not a suffering Messiah. Theirs is a conquering king. And yet, what is this, this Jesus of Nazareth doing, dying on a cross, king of the Jews, as Pontius Pilate wrote on the, on the uh, titulus, the accusation that was nailed to the cross with Jesus? Here, verse 22 says, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Again, the contrast Jews and Greeks is presented here, but then what are they after? And notice even the verbs are different. They ask, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom. Jews at least have the idea, this has to come from outside of us. God has to put himself on display. God has got to do some certain things so that we would see and recognize what God is doing. And yet the contrast is, Greeks figure out they can do it by their own selves. We're going to search for it. We're going to discover it. We're going to use our human reason, our rationality, which again isn't evil and wicked to use our thinking. God wants us to think. But they would say, no, we're going to have our human reason and rationality over God's word. And we're going to judge God, so-called God, by what we think and what we can appreciate, what we can understand. And Paul says that's a problem. Think, yes, but don't outthink or attempt to outthink God when he has spoken. God has spoken in his word. So the Jews seeking for signs versus the Greeks uh, uh, asking for signs, I should say, and the Greeks searching for wisdom is right here, is right here in the book. That's why he's quoted and he has or 14 different Old Testament quotations in these opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. First one we saw back in verse 19. And he says, you're looking for things that have already been revealed. 
You're trying to understand how did this, why is this Christ crucified again? What's that have to do with anything? That makes no sense whatsoever. Well, if you read the book, you'd understand. Even from not the first chapter so much, but the third chapter of Genesis, we realize there's going to be a, a Messiah, a Savior, is going to be subjected to pain and uh, scorn and derision from Satan, right? The, the seed of Satan versus the seed of woman and so forth, Genesis 3.15. We see throughout Scripture, it's not a surprise. It should not have taken us off God. It should not have been an offense to the Jews in that first century world to say, what it, Jesus is talking about the cross. He's going to die for, for people, for sinners, for his nation. What? Where is he making this up? We thought, we understand, and we, we realize this is, this is right. The Messiah is going to come and kick Rome right out of this country. It didn't happen. And because of that, and, and instead of, of that, it's the entire opposite. He died at the hands of the Romans. Where is this Messiah? Where is this conquering king? Where is the son of David? Where is the one who's going to redeem Israel? Where is this one who's going to restore the nation to its place among all the nations? Well, it's Christ. But in order to get to that wonderful fulfillment of his work as Messiah, he had to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Because if he brought his kingdom right now, well, 2,000 years ago before, he, before the cross, he brought his kingdom, nobody would be in it, except him and the angels. You think, well, that's kind of harsh. Yes, because everything is predicated upon Jesus dying on the cross. Everything. Abraham rejoiced to see his day, Moses' day, David's day. Rejoiced to see my day, Jesus said. He saw it and he was glad. And he said, I'm, I'm better than Abraham, our father, better than Moses. All these things. So the Jews who are looking for external confirmation of God's truth, God's word, were frustrated because they were just, that doesn't compute. That doesn't line up with exactly the, the train of thought that we were thinking. And to say, by the way, Paul is not anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. He is a Jewish fellow himself. He is a descendant of, of uh, Benjamin. He's a descendant of Abraham. And so he, and even, and this is kind of, are you serious, Paul? Romans 9 says, I would give up my salvation if it meant that my brothers would come to faith. Is he anti-Semitic? No. He says this is, this is their solution. This is what they're looking for, but they're, they're not willing to admit Christ is the, the Messiah. And he says the Jews, they want signs, and it's not just a New Testament experience. They wanted signs from the, from the beginning. They would go after the idea of, uh, I mean, you think of Gideon, right? In Judges uh, 6, is it, where he is asking for signs, and he... Um, you know, he asks for a double sign. He says, well, do it this way and then invert it and, and then I'll know that you're telling me the truth. Or when Isaiah, uh, this is kind of in a, in a converse sense, God had commanded King Ahaz to ask for a sign. And Ahaz said, no, I'll not put the Lord my God to the test. And then Ahaz came back and said, God told you to ask for a sign. Don't put him to the test by disobeying him. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And you can read about the rest of that in Isaiah 7.14 that looks toward Christ, our Messiah, our Savior. Hezekiah was encouraged by the signs given by God in 2 Kings 9. When we get to the New Testament, yes, definitely. The signs, the multiple signs that Jesus did. In fact, John almost bases his whole gospel narrative on the fact that Jesus was doing this sign. The first of his signs was done in Cana of Galilee at a wedding. And, and some people believed and others didn't believe. And then it goes on and other, other miracles that he did in the course of his ministry. And it came even to uh, the uh, uh, kind of a turning point in Jesus' public ministry back in Matthew chapter 12, 
Some of the scribes, this is verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. As if he hadn't been doing signs all along, preaching the gospel of the kingdom for sure. I mean, that's, that's an historical sign as well. But also, hey, can you do a miracle that is incontrovertible, that nobody can you know, uh, alter or, or explain away or, or say, no, that happened because of antibiotics or something? No. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And he goes on in that context talking about that the, Jesus, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days, three days and three nights in the belly or the heart of the earth, and then be raised up, just like Jonah was. Other texts, you can just look at different ways that in the Gospels, particularly, that Jesus does signs. And even when you get to the cross, Mark 15, the people standing around him, Mark 15, verse 32 says, Hey, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who crucified with him were also insulting him. And so you realize, to how many signs did they, those people need to see? What would be the convincing? Okay, that, that's it. We know that this is the way it is. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. And even there, that word debate that we looked at back in verse 21, was it? Or 20, verse 20, where's the debate of this age? has to do with those who argue back and forth. And there was one point, or maybe two points in Jesus' ministry, where he did something that was, I mean, one, my professor in college would, would define a miracle as when God perpendicularizes himself into humanity, where there's no other way than to say God did that. Because it's not something that you can explain, humanly speaking. It is something where he comes right down and does it. Jesus did something, a sign from heaven. And they said, hmm, is, could this one be the Messiah, the son of David? And others people said, no, it couldn't be. All these reasons. Even John the Baptist was confused about these things. And Jesus said, go and tell him what you've seen. The idea of this, this issue of signs, but how many signs are, are necessary to convince you to believe the gospel? We realize that, um, oh, there's so many different times in John's gospel where he, he says, like John 12, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him, so that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, to that generation. They were without excuse. From the, from the north to the south, they saw and heard and witnessed what Jesus had done and yet rejected him. The point being, signs don't guarantee faith. There are those who have seen so many signs, even from, think of the Exodus and the Exodus generation and those who, another, another generation arose after Joshua and, and the elders that did not know God or the works that he'd done for Israel as it said in, in Judges chapter 1 and chapter 2, and it really devolves from there. So signs don't guarantee a salvation, but also signs can be faked. They can be falsified. Think about that in terms of the signs that Moses was given to uh, affirm or validate his authority as a messenger of God and you know, the, put your hand in your, in your cloak and bring it out as leprous or put your staff on the ground and all these different things. Hey, the magicians of Pharaoh could do the same kind of thing. They can falsify, they can fake things. Or think about the end times when Antichrist and his false prophet are going to do wonderful signs. I mean, tremendous things. But they're fake. They're not real. They're not signs that God is doing. They're su supernatural signs. But they are wicked. And they are 
uh, leading people astray from what God has intended. So signs do not guarantee faith, and signs can be faked or or uh, misrepresented, mis- mispresented. And so we recognize, hey, signs aren't where it's at. We don't we don't need some supernatural experience. We don't need to have everybody doing whatever. And we're going to get to that in his discussion of spiritual gifts there in chapters twelve and, and thirteen and fourteen. But you remember when Peter Peter said this as Second Peter chapter one. He was on the mountain of transfiguration. If you wanted to have an experience with Jesus that is like kingdom come on earth, there's Jesus and there's Moses and there's Elisha or Eliyahu, 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 uh, the prophet, Elijah, and they're talking together. And there's Peter and, the, and James and John and they they're, should have kept their mouths shut. But Peter spoke, he says, shall, shall I make a booth for you and, and, and one for, for Moses, one for Elijah? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. But Peter makes the point, I was there on the mountain. I walked with Jesus all this time. But first Peter chapter one, excuse me, second Peter chapter one says, We have the prophetic word more sure than any experience that he could muster up or remember, or reflect on. We have the word of God, and that is what we pay attention to. We realize this is the authority, not our experience, not asking, you know, God, give me just one more sign. Just, you know, let me see you just do this. Even the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders said, show us a sign. It is said from the heavens or in the heavens, you know, do something with the sun, you know, like you did with Hezekiah or back in the time of Joshua, you made the sun stand still over Ajalon and the, and the moon or the valley of, of uh, how did it go? Uh, Ajalon and, and the valley of whatever it was back in, in the, in the, uh, Joshua's day. Can you do something like that? And then we'll believe. You won't believe. You remember how Jesus ended the, the parable of, whether it's a parable or not, the, the account, the whatever it is, at the end of Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man said, hey, send Lazarus down to, to, to you know, put a little drip of water on my tongue. Or if he can't do that, send him to my brothers and warn them because I am perishing in this fire down here. I want to, I want to warn them and avoid them. And the end line there, Jesus says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He says, no, Lord, but if somebody from back, comes back from the dead, they'll believe. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if somebody be raised up from the dead. You think, well, that's kind of harsh. That's what Jesus says. It's not an issue of credulity. credulity. It's not an issue of, I just need a little bit more sign here, God. Help me out here. Do you believe the word? Do you believe God's word? The Jews are looking for all these things. And Paul says, that's not what we offer. That's not what we preach. That's not what we're giving people, signs and experiences and so forth. Greeks, on the other hand, these, especially the, the Greeks, but also the Greeks is just a generic term for Gentiles, non, non-Jews. They seek or search or find out or discover wisdom. Now, that's a noble thing, right? Even the Proverbs, you know, 2,000 years before, or at least 1,000 years, excuse me, before uh, first century, uh, the proverb that says, it's the glory of God, uh, uh, glory of kings to search out a matter, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. So it is a glorious thing to research, to investigate, to explore, to do scientific studies and investigations. It's a great thing to discern. But when it comes to the matters or the issues of meaning of life, when it comes to the issues of why do people do the things they, they do, who is God? How can we understand God? 
Is there a way that, that humanity can have a relationship with, with God, a deity? Uh, what is, as we talked last time, what is goodness? What is beauty? What is truth? What is love? These kinds of things. And we, we take this book and kind of set it aside and we just start ruminating and thinking and processing, searching out wisdom that way. You're not going to get there. You're not going to get there. You need revelation. You need to engage your mind in it. But it must be based on what God has spoken to us, based on his revealed word, his, his revelation of himself, his works in the world, his, his supernatural, uh, you know, um, perpendicularizing himself into human history. Greeks are searching. They're, they're trying to find out all these things, but they're not going to conclude the right, uh, right things. They're seeking after it. And it wasn't just a, a, a mean, not like evil mean, but an average or... Uh, a dull kind of search, they were quite active. I mean, they would spend hours a day, if not all day, engaged in this conversation and talk about this and, and uh, speculative philosophy. And that's the word I was trying to think of earlier, just thinking about things and just trying to, you know, what if this, and, hey, if this happened, then how would that affect this? And, you know, my experience or my really reminds us of Job, Job's three friends, as they were saying, well, based on my experience or my history or my knowledge or my understanding, this is, you know, Job, this is your issue. Where's God? Where's God's revelation? If God doesn't speak, we're not, we're not just disadvantaged. If God does not speak, there's no, there's no progress. There's nothing we can do because we just, there's so much we don't know. Even as God has spoken, there's so much we don't know of what God is doing in this world. And so we need to, how do how you do it? Faith, trusting God. God is good. We, we rest on the promises that he made, and we realize, wow, uh, God is the one who is all-wise, all-powerful, can do all things. So these are inadequate pursuits. In other words, verse 22, Jews seeking after signs, Greeks searching after wisdom, asking for signs, searching after wisdom. No. In fact, based on their perception, their, their desires, the basis of their, their philosophy or their cosmology or their epistemology, their definition of, of what is truth, what is knowledge. Uh, when you come to the message of the cross, the word of the cross, well, it's a stumbling block. It is an offense to the Jews because they're looking for these signs. They said, well, when Messiah comes, he's going to do these wonderful works. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to get those Romans out of our country and raise up you know, his throne on the throne of his father, David, and it's going to be tremendous and wonderful. And so we preach a crucified Christ that does not fit into our agenda here. What you know, this whole thing. Uh, okay, so we have Meg. I suppose Maya would be the one. Make Israel great again. Is that right? Make Israel mega. Anyway, uh, we're mixing some philosophy, some politics there. But the idea is that we want Israel on top of everything else. We want Christ, this Messiah, to rule and reign. And then he's going to the cross. What is that? It's a stumbling block. It is something that you know they're running the race and they think, oh, we've got this Jesus on the line, and then. Flat on their faces, they fall. Because he's, he's being crucified. He's being led like a lamb to the slaughter. And it's embarrassing. They say he's the king of the Jews. Don't say he's king of the Jews. Say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Because he's not. Our king would never die on the cross. Really. Because there's your king. And he's dying in your place. You deserve to be hanging there, you sinner. And yet he's the one. So these, these Jews are just stumbling. They have stumbled over that stone of offense. And they say, no, we, we, can't, we can't accept this. Because as Jesus is hanging on the cross, they're thinking what Deuteronomy chapter 
21 says, Cursed of God is the one who's hanged on a tree. And in our perspective, well, he wasn't hanged like from the neck, right? So that doesn't apply to Jesus. No, Romans quotes this verse. Galatians quotes this verse. And we realize, no, this is Christ who was hanged, not just from the neck, but hanged, crucified, nailed to a cross of wood and became a curse. Oh, but that sounds so harsh. I mean, really, we're really not that bad, are we? Sin isn't really that awful in God's sight. Jesus died for it. Does that mean this, this kind of a minor issue, kind of a misdemeanor versus a felony? Or you know, no, sin is sin. Oh, but you know, sometimes there are you know capital sins and then cardinal sins and venial sins. Sin is sin, and if you disobey God, you are worthy of death. Oh, but that's that's so Old Testament. No, no, that is New Testament, and that is fulfilled in Jesus. He became sin for us, and so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus talks about this offense. Uh, Blessed is he who does not take offense, does not stumble over me. The scripture talks about in uh, Romans 9, uh, these Gentiles pursuing righteousness and all these, and uh, they did not pursue it, or they did not pursue it by faith. This is Romans 9, 30, 33. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes upon him will not be put to shame. What's this all about? It's Jesus. Can you Can you put all your theology together about Christology or Messiology. What, who is this Messiah and what he's supposed to do? And you realize, oh, just like the, the prophets who wrote that scripture, they were thinking based on the scriptures, but trying to figure it out what in the world, because there's some aspect of a Messiah and a glorious reigning Messiah. And how do we put those together? They were struggling with this whole idea. How should we talk about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They they couldn't get to a, a real resolution or a good confirmation of that. How do we relate these together? The apostles, the apostles brought this to us. The Jews are stumbling over this thing. They stumbled over the rock of offense and they realized, whoa, uh, God messed up big time on this. I mean, hasn't God read the scriptures? Can you... Just the haughtiness of that thought of saying it is just they stumbled over that stumbling block which God Himself put there because it will not be, as He said in verse 21, by the world, the world through its wisdom. World in that sense would be both Jews and Greeks, just anybody in the world. Through its wisdom cannot come to know God. We're going to enter God's fellowship or God's presence based on His wisdom, based on His power, based on His grace, not your own rationality. Uh, history, heritage, uh, connections, anything like that. The Jews, excuse me, the Greeks, the Gentiles here again, says uh, it is foolishness. Again, not just something that is comical, like they laugh at it, but they laugh in a derisive kind of say, just ridiculing it, just mocking it, just finding all kind of scorn heaping upon, hey, there's Jesus, he saved others, he cannot save, can he save himself? I mean, that's, that was the Jews speaking, but that's what the world added. What is this foolish Jesus doing up here? It was an embarrassment, because, again, the Gentiles understood what's going on with the Roman execution, and the Jews did too, but Gentiles said this is a humiliating, embarrassing, shameful, criminal act. It's not just a criminal act for those who, you know, steal a loaf of bread or, or you know, whatever. These, this is for political prisoners. This is for notorious murderers and rebels and stuff. Oh, Jesus, this must be really bad. He became really bad because he took our sin on him. But in himself, no, he is perfect. He is righteous. He always obeyed God. So the Gentiles think, well, what's he doing on the cross then? If he's, if he's this Messiah figure, if he's this one who's going to save the world, and all, what is he doing? 
on this cross. And so they were just stumbling over this whole thing. Well, verse 24 tells us, helps us realize there are two erroneous, uh, faulty interpretations or views in the gospel. What about a proper view? Verse 24 says, to those who are the called, this word of the cross, this uh, preaching Christ crucified, uh, is uh, to both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So again, you can kind of see how that works. What are two proper views of the gospel? It's the power of God and it's God's wisdom on display. In other words, Christ being crucified. And that idea isn't something that Christ is being crucified, just like we are being saved back in verse 18, a present ongoing idea. No, Christ was crucified. That whole thing is done with. We don't need to crucify him again. We don't need to have a, a, a re-sacrifice. No, he accomplished salvation. We preach, we proclaim. The power of, of the gospel is not in the the, uh, the the presentation of it, the the, the you know the, the approach, how we you know, nuance our words and what we wear and and the right time of day or just you know the gospel is really effective on a Sunday morning at ten o'clock, uh, you know the afternoon is not so effective. No, the power of the gospel is the gospel itself, not the preacher, which he's going to get into in chapter two one one through five. It is not time of day. It's not the the words that are used. It's the gospel, Christ crucified. That's what we preach, and it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. Notice it says, it is this to those who are the called. We looked at this. Those who are believing, those who are being saved, those who are by God's good pleasure called or summoned into his presence through Jesus the Son. And it is those who receive this wonderful application of God's grace through the message, message preached. And he says, doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Greek. doesn't matter what your nationality is, what your ethnicity is, what your uh, background, anything like that. To Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Notice it focuses on his person. It focuses on Christ himself. Everything that we have is, based, is, is given through Christ. Uh, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1.3. And so apart from Christ, we have nothing. In Christ is in our is in Christ is our our life is hidden in Christ in God with Christ in God Colossians three, uh, one through four, and so he says Jews and Greeks isn't that a wonderful thing? Jews who are asking for signs, Greeks searching for wisdom, put that aside, and run to Christ. It is a shocking stumbling block. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the wisdom of God. Notice how it repeats that idea. Uh, it says it. Two different, well, twice here in this thing. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In other words, this is God on display. And we think, well, God, surely God could have chosen a different way to do it. How can a king come? How should a king come? There's a Christmas carol that focuses on all this wonderful. He came as a little baby. He had to be carried different places, nursed, fed, diaper changed, all these things. That's just weak. That is poor. That That is shameful. Exactly. And yet, that's what God in his wisdom said. This is what's going to happen. He's going to identify with his people. He's going to be baptized even. John, um, well, Luke 3, Matthew 3, talked about his, the baptism of, of Jesus. And, and John says, what? You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, permit it at this time. For in so doing, we fulfill all righteousness. Everything Jesus did was to the glory and the obedience of the Father. And so Christ is the power of God on display. He is saying, this isn't just something, a potential uh, uh, sacrifice or, or that somehow, you know, Christ has, has offered himself and, you know, some people might believe him or receive him or, 
or whatever. No, Christ is the power of God. And what he has done in his flesh, offering a, a sacrifice for sin, purchased salvation. Christ is the power of God. It, it doesn't just make it uh, available or uh, um, possible. It is effective under these things. So different, so different from the wisdom of the world. It says, well, if we think about it this way, and we say, well, if we say about it this way, or that that person over here says this, and you know, Rabbi so-and-so says this, or if God would just give us a sign, we'd know once and for all. Forget about all these things. Look to Christ. Cling to Christ. He is, he is the power of God and the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world is perishing. God is destroying that. He's setting it aside. This whole world age is, is decaying. It's falling apart, which is one of the reasons that Paul says in, in chapter 7, you know, if you're not married, you should stay unmarried because this world is passing away and things are just falling apart and be better if you can just have soul uh, devotion and attention to Christ because when you get married, your interests are divided and you have to please your wife, please your husband, whatever. But if you're unmarried, you can focus on doing doing the Lord's business because this world, things are getting horrible. This was 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine what Paul would say now? Hey, I already told you, have you read Romans 1? That describes 21st century America and the world around. Anyway, we see that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because, verse 25 says, the wisdom, or excuse me, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. From the world's perspective, which is a wrong verdict, this is, this is incorrect, God's wisdom, what? He's foolish. If God had just checked with me first, before he put all this into print, I could have saved him a lot of grief. His PR campaign is horrible. The marketing, his advertising, a suffering Christ on a cross, naked, beaten for his own people. His own disciples ran away. That's not the right message to present. God, if you'd just checked with me first, God's wisdom is foolish to those who are perishing. God's strength, you know, God putting himself, you know, this is the best you can do, God. This is your power to salvation. That is weak. That is just embarrassing. That is just shameful. And God says, no, it's not. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, we do not judge right, rightly about what God is doing. And even as believers, we can find fault with God and says, God, don't you know that that hurt? You just took this from me, or you gave me something I really didn't want. God's wisdom is where it's at. God's purpose is in this world. God's power displayed through human cracked pots like us, human just vessels of clay. He says, that's how my church is being built, through messengers, preachers of the gospel, those who share the gospel with their neighbors. That's how my kingdom is advanced. And when Christ comes, there'll be no question. You want signs from heaven? Jesus is going to bring a sign from heaven. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right now, we can have this promise, this kindness of God. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Don't be one who's perishing, because if you're perishing, you, you don't look for the solution that God has provided. This is salvation. There's no salvation in any other name. Only in the name of Jesus is, is uh, our salvation to be found. But to those who are being saved, this is the power of God. This is God, as Jesus said, wisdom is justified or vindicated by its fruit or by its, its works or its deeds. Christ saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, hey, guess what? Will be saved. I think, bah, so easy. Naaman, right? The general Naaman, the Syrian guy, 
had leprosy, went to the Jordan River. Oh, but we have better rivers back at home. Just go. Just do what the prophet said. Would you please do what the prophet said? Okay. And he went, and he was cleansed, and his skin was like, get us some little babies out here. Little baby's skin was his, I mean, good, rough and tumble general army guy. Just, wow. Just obey what God has said. It is the wisdom of God. It's the power of God. One of the things we realize when Christ went to the cross, a crucified Christ means that should have been me. I should have died for my sin. I should be bearing that shame, that reproach. My sins are worthy of God's judgment, condemnation. Absolutely, I deserve to die. When we consider what, you know, what is success anyway? How do we measure success? Because, you know, Jesus had very few converts, even among his own disciples. Certainly his brothers did not believe in him, right? His stepbrothers or whatever. And yet after Jesus purchased salvation and that first preaching of the gospel by Peter in Pentecost, Thousands were converted. Thousands were baptized. And then it kept on growing. In fact, Acts is an account of how does this church grow. In many regards, Jesus' ministry was, was a failure, and yet it was not. It accomplished exactly what Jesus said. He saturated the land with the message of the truth, signs so that people were without excuse. You have seen, you have heard, you have testified. You can te you've seen what Jesus has done. So it's not an issue of, well, if he'd just done a few more things. No. The issue is your unbelieving, stubborn, and rebellious heart. You better repent. You better ask God to forgive you of your sin. We realize success, based on our wisdom, comes, we get different definitions and different applications. But we realize, whoa, the wisdom of God is displayed in embarrassing kind of situations. The foolishness of Christ suffering shameful uh, death, a, a weakness, being being he's powerless in the hands of his of his accusers and so forth, and he suffered a death, but that death was just a part of that whole chain of salvation that is ultimately going to uh, bring glory to God because every person will in heaven and on earth all time will look to Christ and say that that's the wisdom of God. That is the power of God, and I have life in his name. Or he is just to condemn me to eternal hell because I did not say amen to what Jesus was offering. And so look to Christ. Find him your salvation. Find him your life, and pray that he would come again. We're going to close with a song about Christ coming again, but let's pray first. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your wisdom, your strength on display through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is a beautiful Savior. And we thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for the life that we have in him, the forgiveness of our sins. What an issue is ours if we do not turn from our sin and find our redemption, our salvation in Christ alone. We pray that that would be true of each soul here, trusting in Christ, finding their identity in Christ, finding the balm that goes right to the heart of our issues, our insecurities, our, our concerns about who we are, how we think about ourselves. Christ answers all these things and brings us to the place where we say, Amen, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray for your renown, your glory to be made more manifest in this world through your church, through your people. We want to rejoice in Christ. We want to lead many people to Christ, especially this Christmas season, recognizing Christ is the Savior of the world. He's the only one that brings us a message of life and of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Please save, please sanctify for your good pleasure. Grant Christ's name. Amen.